Welcome to the Korean American Parenting Podcast, where we share the idiosyncrasies, struggles, joys, and pains of being a Korean American parent, not just Korean or American, navigating the unique cross-cultural challenges of parenthood. I'm Jerry. And I'm Jang. Join us each week as we chat with fellow parents and parenting experts about topics like academics, health, both physical and mental, and culture. And of course, how current events such as COVID has impacted all our lives in numerous ways. Our hope is that through these conversations, we'll grow together as confident Korean American parents, raising confident Korean American children. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at Korean American Parenting. And be sure to share this with a fellow parent if you find the show helpful. Thanks again for tuning in. And here now is this week's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Korean American Parenting. And first and foremost, we, we hope you're doing well. I don't know if better is the right word or if well is the right word, but you should be listening to this in the earlier part of April. And I, I have to hope that by now, some of the hate crimes and some of the violence that we've often seen have quieted down. Something tells me that it won't be. And, and we have a long, long way to go to get out of this. And particularly as parents of young people, meaning that we have to worry not only about our kids, but also our parents. Um, there's a lot going on. And so we, first of all, wish you health and, and safety and, and some sort of happiness, but, but also uh, thank you for joining us, however you found us. Today's episode is super duper special because we've had friends on the show. We've had strain, or new friends and old friends on the show. And today, for the first time, we get to have family. Our guest today is my sister-in-law. And so really excited to learn from, I call her Sunny. Her, her students call her Dr. Bay, but we are really, really excited to learn about the world of child psychology, particularly as it relates to a little bit older children than we've often discussed here in the show. And so to introduce our guest and to begin our conversation, here's my co-host, Jang. Hi, everybody. Like um, Jerry said, I hope everybody is faring well this week, hopefully better than the last week and the one before. Um so I am very excited to meet Sunny um, so that I can actually get all the lowdowns on Jerry. Um, <laughs> but I'm also really excited to hear about her work and her thoughts and expertise on working with teens and young adults. Um, and so welcome, Sunny. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, uh, I'm, I'm so glad to have you on. Um, usually in our podcast, I like you to, um, introduce yourself, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and also about your work in your own words. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation, Jerry, and for having me, um, be on this podcast. It's, it's really cool that you're doing this. Um, so like Jerry and Jang said, I'm Sunny Bay. I'm, um, currently a mom to an eight month old Willow. Um, who is Korean American. <laughs> um, and so my experiences as a mother is pretty limited. It's, it's quite short, I would say. Um, I've thought a lot more about kids, teens, and young adults with my professional hat on. I'm currently an assistant professor in human development and family studies at Penn State University. And I am uh, also a licensed child psychologist um, for the state of California, where I got most of my training. 
it has been really exciting to see Willow grow up and um, to see some of what I've studied or read about um, come alive in front of my eyes. Um, and I'm pretty happy that she's not a teen yet because <laughs> as challenging as um, infancy and in those early years are, I think adolescence is a lot more, for better or worse, complex. Um, and so we have quite a few years ahead of us before we have to um, deal with those unique challenges, I guess, and joys. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I have I have family and friends who have teens, and um, they are they have different level of difficulties. Uh, so welcome to the motherhood. Um, I was just telling Sunny right before the recordings that she looked really great for the uh, eight month old mom. I was not there. <laughs> I was dying. Um, so it's it's uh, you know it's really good to see that both mom and the uh, child flourish. But tell me a little bit about you know like how, why you went into child psychologist. You know you're the second child psychologist on our podcast today. Um, and, um, and what is it about teens and young adults that you like about working with? Sure, I found child psychology somewhat circuitously. In college, I was really interested in working for community health organizations, and I actually went to get a master's in public health, and that's where I learned about how psychosocial stressors get under the skin and contribute to disparities in health. And I decided that I wanted to learn a little bit more about, or a lot more, it turns out a lot more about this, and found that psychology is one of the disciplines that are studying stress and the intersection of these social stressors as it relates to biology and then later on affects psychological and physical health outcomes. So I went into child, child psychology because I uh, was specifically really curious about how, um, well, so kids, you know, as they go about their day-to-day -day lives, they encounter a lot of different problems. Sometimes those problems are really big and really hard to manage, like problems associated with neighborhood disadvantage or poverty. Um, sometimes those problems are really small, like getting made fun of at school. It kind of happens to everybody. Um, and many of them have families. And so I found myself wondering how the family environment might mitigate some of the effects of stressors that kids face outside of the home or sometimes related to their home environments. And so that's how I found my way into child psychology. I, I found researchers who were looking into that work or looking into those questions um, and conducting that work. Since then, I've become a lot more interested in, in the outcome side of that research question. So how do these stressors not only get under the skin, but affect their um, mental health during childhood, adolescence, and later on also in adulthood. And I, I should add that as while I was gaining or getting trained as a child psychologist, I got to really experience the joys of working with um, teens and families in real life. And um, <laughs> and that was really great that having that experience definitely, I think, informs some of the research questions that you might have and the research that you do, of course, informs the work that you do with actual families. That's how I ended up in child psychology. Currently, I am in a department called Human Development and Family Studies, but it's very interdisciplinary and it's 
pretty inclusive of all experts who conduct research in the area of human development and families, like the, the name suggests. So it's been a really good place. The second question was why focus on this later part of childhood and development? I think everybody understands and knows that those early, early years are really, really crucial for development. It really sets the stage and sets the course. What may not be as well known, although I think it's becoming much more well known, is that adolescence is another period of immense change. Um, there's a lot of change going on biologically and neurologically that makes these particular years perhaps not as formative as the first couple of years, but probably the most formative second to infancy and early childhood. So I thought that was that was really interesting about these years. There are also a lot of life transitions that happen that are really meaningful, right? So we have kids leaving elementary school, entering middle school, which is a huge deal. And then after a few short years, they find themselves in high school, which is a really, really different environment. And then college is yet another setting that's very different from where they've been before. And so I like to think about how the family environment can support kids while they're going through these transitions through usually the education system, but also these biological and cognitive transitions. Yeah, no, I find the um, what we call transitional youth age um, really quite interesting and sometimes challenging, but also because a lot of times, you know, late teens and young adults, physiologically, just physically, they look like they're full-on adults but, um, and think that they are. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, the brain doesn't really mature until 25. And I always say the rental cars have it right because <laughs> they don't, they, they try to not rent out cars until 25. So, you know, it's kind of about navigating um, kind of the independence portion, but also still having, needing the support from the family. I think what you were telling me about your research, um, you know, you were looking at adversities. I'm assuming that you're also looking at kind of resilience factors, protective factors in those moments. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what would those be and how that might be helpful? You're absolutely right, Jang. I, I look at protective factors quite a bit in my work, and I'm particularly interested in the family environment as a source of protection and resilience. I know that's not always the case for many teens. I acknowledge that. But even in really tough families, our hope is that there might be at least one caregiver who can provide resources for coping. I mean, there are certainly other resiliency factors as well that pertain more to the individual, but um, focusing on the family. I think this is probably not surprising to anybody, but having, you know, supportive, responsive parents, I think goes a really long way, even if some of the stress is coming from the family itself. I think every family has moments when they're not getting along or when they're in conflict one another uh, with one another, it's inevitable, um, or maybe the parents are fighting about something. But even in those circumstances, having moments of supportive parenting, if I may, I guess, use that term, or having moments of connection, I guess, between teens and adolescents, uh, teens and adults, parents specifically, is really important. And it's a huge piece to promoting, I think, well-being and health in our young people. 
So then I'm going to ask you a really difficult question, I think. I don't know if there's an answer. But, you know, I think all uh, families with teens and all parents with teens have struggled with this because, you know, it's a very, um, I think, for most families, it's a very conflicting time when your child is teen because parents really have a hard time. But then taking it into Korean-American families, um, I think it sometimes can be even bigger, difficult, like even more difficult time you know, for many different reasons. Uh, are there things that, uh, um, you know, parents who parent Korean American children, are there things that they can do to kind of mitigate all of these difficulties? I don't know. I don't think I can answer that question. So I'm, I'm throwing <laughs> it out to you. Yeah, I have some ideas. And, you know, Good. when you say, I don't know if they're, we'll have to see, right? But I think when we say support, that's, it's a pretty easy word, but if if you really think about how to provide support to an older child, it gets really complicated. Mm-hmm. If you check in on them too much, then you're annoying, mm-hmm. right? If you ask yes. about what they're feeling, then you're um, patronizing. If you set rules to make sure that they're staying in line, then you're being restrictive. And then if you add on the complications that arise from generational dissonance or that kind of generational disagreements in immigrant families, it gets even more challenging to provide support or figure out what that means, right? Because I think for, well, one thing certainly is that youth who are raised in in the States usually seek more autonomy and autonomy feels a lot more normal, independence. Um, And I think um, parents who were raised in Korea might want that level of independence that American youth enjoy may, may be a little more novel for them. One practical thing that I often suggest to families when um, we're talking about providing support is that it doesn't have to be this big grand gesture. And in fact, it's better if it's really um, almost unnoticeable. So we're not talking about like having a sit down over dinner and asking about asking the youth about all the problems of their day, because who really has time for that these days when you're working several jobs and when the teen is engaged in so many activities, both academic and otherwise. Um, But instead, support can look like you going by your child's family, I mean, your child's room to give them a glass of water and just checking in um, and then kind of walking out. Maybe you leave the door accidentally open just a little bit, not to like disturb their privacy, but just to um, create a channel of communication if the youth wants it. Um, maybe it's watching, sitting down to watch a show with them if they're um, watching something um, in the living room and or watching like sports maybe, and even if it's not of interest to you, um, or bringing them snacks if their friends are over. Something I think that Korean American parents are are already doing um, without really even thinking about it. I think all those little moments can convey um, support and provide, create opportunities for communication that um, is a little more organic or child-directed. And it still, I think, allows the child to... um, act 
as an individual and kind of practice that level of independence independence that they're um, seeking. So that's one thing that I suggest to a lot of families and one thing that I'm particularly interested in looking into more in my work. Um, and there's some other work that I've, I've recently read about that I think is really cool to think about. So in immigrant families, you know, despite youth wanting more independence and sometimes fighting with their parents about that, um, immigrant youth are also, despite all of their fighting, um, they often do prioritize families more than non-immigrant youth do. So if we compare immigrant youth to non, like to white American youth, they, they do pr prioritize the, the family um, more than white Americans. So sometimes that has, that comes with costs, right? It might make you a little more reticent to share your problems with your family because you don't want to burden them because you care about them so much. Um, but I think that can also become a strength and it is a strength for many families in that it means that the family matters. And so if the family cares, that's really helpful and like a really huge source of resource to that teen. We also know that youth from immigrant families and Korean American families, I think, would fall into this, um, oftentimes help out their parents more around the house. Um, and that of course can be annoying. <laughs> For example, if there's a family business, the youth might help out more at that business. And it does take time and it can be stressful because not only are you studying for things, trying to spend time with friends, but now you have to help your family. Yes, um, we get it. But at the same time, it, it's actually a really nice opportunity for youth to engage in something that's kind of beyond themselves, to participate in um, a meaningful activity that, that means something to the people that means something to them. Um, so I think thinking about these unique traits and patterns um, and, and brainstorming how we can turn that into an advantage is one direction um, to go. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, your uh, um, advice is really quite unique and also very impressive to me uh, personally because you're actually taking the traits of Korean American families or in all immigrant families that a lot of the kids or even parents think is the disadvantage to the child you know, the a lack of maybe verbal communication um, or like needing to help out with financial means or work, um, which can be burdensome or stressful for both parent or the child. But you're actually taking that and turning them into opportunities where nonverbal communications can be helpful. Also, characters can be developed that would benefit our children in the, in the long run. I think that's quite noble <laughs> for me. Like, I think that's not just looking at black and white, but um, thinking just perspective change in, the, yeah. in what's already there. But it's hard, right? Teens aren't gonna <laughs> like think that it's fun to help out with the, <laughs> the family business. Um, and it's especially hard if they're getting involved in things like language brokering, which is where they're translating for their parents, or if they're feeling the financial stresses of their parents. Like those kinds of dynamics we know are not very helpful. Um, and it is 
a challenge. But at the same time, we know that teens who give back to their communities, whether that's their more close-knit family or maybe um, their church group or um, something that their parents are involved with, that that's usually a good thing and that it fosters, it promotes mental health and well-being. I think the challenge for Korean American families is to think about what they're already doing and consider ways to scale back aspects of what they're doing that is detrimental, like language brokering or burdening youth with financial stressors, but really kind of raising up parts that are good. So um, the teens being engaged in a family activity, doing something together with the church, spending time together, even if that means that you're doing that at a store. Like those are all really good things. That's just something that I've been thinking about and reading about. Yeah, I think one of the things that I want to add, but also ask your opinion on it is also kind of identity um, formation for these children and how to integrate their dual identity in appropriately in, in a way that they are proud of their identity and how that would kind of help them in their traditional youth as well, especially given yeah. that they're going, going away from their family of origin. Yeah, that's so hard, actually. And I personally identify with that question, because I, I think even for me, figuring out my Korean American identity has been like a journey, you know, and it's taking on whole new a whole new meaning. Um, now that I'm a mom, one thing that parents and teens should appreciate is that it's a process and it's supposed to be a process. It's not supposed to be like this um, teens aren't supposed to have an answer all of a sudden <laughs> or have an, a sense of what their identity is. And many teens go through different phases. So sometimes for some amount of time, especially early in adolescence, they may identify strongly with the majority um, identities. So they may want to be like the white kids in their school and they may resent the fact that they're not. And that is normal. It would not be so great if the, the child was stuck there, um, less ideal, but um, it's very normal for a teen to experience that phase, right? And then there may be a complete swing where they discover K-pop and wish that they weren't a minority student in their school and feel like Koreans are the best and why isn't anyone understanding me and maybe want to go spend a summer in Korea and that's also one stage of identity development. Eventually, after some of the after exploring these different stages, ideally would like the youth to have, I guess, their own sense of identity that in integrates all of their experiences together, that integrates their Korean identity along with the experiences that they've had growing up in America. Many youth get there, some don't. I think one thing that families can do to support that is to not necessarily try to persuade the teen in one direction or another, to understand that the child's perspectives on their own identity is going to change through the years, through those adolescent years, and that that's normal, and try to um, have conversations that highlight the strength of the Korean identity, because that's something that the parents can bring to the table, right? conversations that highlight how 
that don't like minimize or diminish the Korean identity, but that talk about its strengths and maybe sharing some of the cool historical history that's associated with Korea, some of, or, or telling them about people in, in both Korea and in, in America who are Korean leaders, you know, cool role models. So having those positive conversations about the Korean identity while not forcing them into one path or another is really helpful and I think important for positive development. Thank you for uh, those words. Uh, I totally kind of agree with you that um, even for me as well, identity formation and my own identity in terms of am I Korean American, Korean or American has been some a journey, a really long journey. I think the one thing that I would say was kind of negative about that journey was that I felt very lonely. Yeah, uh, I wasn't able to really convey this difficulty with my parents who are very monochromatic in their identity. They've always lived in Korea. They stayed in Korea. They're still in Korea. And so they had a really, I don't think they had a capacity to understand my uh, dilemma. And, um, you know, not all parents, even the ones that are here might not be able to do that. But right. the fact that you can have this discussion might make that growth um, journey a little bit less lonely for these kids as well. So, Sunny, I have a follow-up question to that because I, I think geogra- geography and demographics and diversity of geography play a critical role. Our, our family is, is from L.A. We're still here. You recently moved to State College, as you mentioned, um, in, in pursuit of your career. You know, arguably less diverse uh, with less Asian American or Asian influences. Very less diverse. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my nice way of saying that. And, and you know, I, I think this notion of just cultural influence and the familiarity with Asian American or Korean American things culturally does play a role. So, for example, when, you know, Kyungwai and I were thinking of where to move to after business school, for me, like, is there a density of culture and supermarkets or things play, particularly in, in recent discussions with, is there a safe place for us to raise our Korean American children, given all the racism and hate crimes? What are some tips and having lived in both very large cities with dense Asian populations and your experience living there now, what are, what are some tips for folks who may live in areas like yours that don't have, whose kids may not actually have Asian or Korean friends growing up, right? Whether in high school or even before that, and your parent circles may not. And, and so how do we instill, you know, what, what are some top of mind things that you think about as, you know, you're raising a Korean American daughter in an area where she may not see herself as often, other people may view her differently, um, a little bit different than the experiences that I, I know that all of us had growing up with either in Korea or, you know, in populations where there were a lot of people who looked like yeah, us. Yeah, it's it's definitely an additional challenge that families who are living in um, less diverse areas have to overcome. And I think that's where those conversations um, that parents lead can be really helpful. Um, again, talking about the good of Koreans and uh, without shoveling it down their throats <laughs> or, or forcing their children to identify one way or another, but just portraying their culture in a positive light and having frequent conversations about um, that that aspect of the youth's identity is one really important thing. Um, now we're lucky because there is better, not great, but better representation on media, right? Um, so while we don't want to 
of course, have kids be watching television all the time, um, I think we can be a little strategic about the kinds of programs that they're being exposed to. So watching um, movies that feature Asian characters or Asian leaders, listening to programs like this, (laughs) Um, and just trying to create extra um, opportunities for the kids to learn more about um, people who they may identify with more, um, I think is another strategy. And maybe frequently talking about racism, biases, and um, modeling how you might deal with that in a less diverse area is also really helpful. Because I think kids internalize a lot of um, the weight that parents carry on their shoulders. Yeah. That's what I think. It is um, very not diverse here, but it's um, we've been pretty fortunate. It's safe because it's a college town. And, you know, I think a big city in some ways may feel even may feel less safe um, because there are so many people with so many different views, too. I think that's actually really helpful. I live in even less diverse <laughs> a place. So uh, media um, has been really helpful for my young child um, to kind of um, have herself reflected uh, in, these, in the things that she watches. Now that we're coming to an end, do, um, I would like you to uh, give us a one, um, uh, one more word, any advice for um, our li- listeners, Korean American parenting audience, if you have any. I think the one advice that I have is that there's a lot of change going on in kids. Like nothing is final. Um, Even when they're older, like we talked about identity development, they're going to go through a lot of different phases. They're going to have a lot of different phases when it comes to how they feel about you. And I think the best thing that the parent can do is just take a deep breath, understand that, that whatever is going on at that particular moment is likely not forever and still be present for the child, how, however that may look. Um, yeah, so that would be my one, <laughs> one thought to part with. Thank one you. Thought. I'll, I'll take a breath. Sonia, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I want to say thank you. Um, I know how stressful and just insane things can be with a tiny person at home. Both you and, and my brother work a full time from home. And so so we know the challenges. And, and so, you know, when I first started this show or when Jag and I had first thought of this show many, many months ago, Kyungwoo and I said, it'd be dope to have Sonny on the show. And we, we made it the whole episode without talking about my brother one minute. So that was also a, a big win. <laughs> I just want to say thank you, not only for what you shared with us today, but I do think that we often talk about representation. Uh, we often talk about contextually relevant words of advice and, and things that go far beyond what you can read in a textbook. Because most textbooks, whether it is science or otherwise, are not written by people who look like us or have had our shared experiences. And so for you to share your unique perspectives on child psychology, particularly for adolescents, um, having your lived experience as an Asian American, or in your case, Asian Canadian person, and then to share it with uh, your patients, your students, your community, so that it is actually relevant to our culture, not just a Korean or American, but just, you know, our, our new Korean American third culture. I, I think it is so important. 
especially now, because we're grown adults. Uh, we can't process any of this stuff, what's been going on. And, and so to ask our kids who are dealing with just kids stuff to add this burden of how do you make sense of hate and racism and our, our self-value and the people that you go to school with say mean things to you. Like, it's all, I, I don't know. And, and like you said, you know, you sort of were joking that you're, you're glad that your daughter's not a teenager. And I, I too am glad that all of our children collectively are at an age where we can sort of um, at least shield them from any of this stuff without having to go on the internet or go to school in person to face the racism and discrimination that so many of our friends' kids do. So thank you for the work that you do. I, I hope that you, you know, and the family stay safe out there, obviously, because it's it's crazy time. Um, and, you know, Jacob and Charlotte say hello. Uh, we also made it through the recording without them barging in, which is also a big bonus. <laughs> and so shout out to the kids for leaving our parent, leaving us alone. <laughs> Sonny, thank you for joining us today. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of parents who are looking and, and thinking about things, parenting for adolescents in a different way. So what we'll do uh, for folks who are listening is, uh, you know, we'll connect with Sonny and we'll uh, come up with a, a short list of resources for you to go read, to listen to, to watch so that you can further deep dive into these things. Obviously, you're not going to get a PhD in psychology coming out of it as Sonny has, but we hope that, you know, some academic resources and some other perspectives and points of view will help all of us raise, as we say here on the show, happy and confident children, because um, it will take all of us. I, I know we've said that a lot this month, uh, the last month, as, as we fight racism together, but to raise our next generation of children that are proud of themselves, um, but also will um, have better sense of identity and protect each other. So uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you to Willow for taking a deep nap. Thank you to our, our, all of our collective families for um, letting us do what we do and, and to share all these thoughts with you. So we will also put in the show notes where you can reach out to Sunny if you uh, want to connect with her. And so hope it's not too cold over there in Pennsylvania still. And Balmy uh, today. It's great. It is. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, we will talk to you and see you soon. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Korean American Parenting Podcast. I want to thank our guest and for you for joining us today as we share our stories and our perspectives along our own Korean American parenting journeys. Follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at Korean American Parenting and be sure to check out our website, KoreanAmericanParenting.com to learn more about the podcast, about us, and about our community. Please take a moment to rate and review this episode if you are listening to us on Apple and share this episode and this podcast with a friend or two in your life who you think would benefit from listening to us. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We wish you all the health and happiness as we go along our parenting journeys together. And we'll see you next time on the Korean American Parenting Podcast.